Good evening to you all. There's so many different possible topics for Dharma talks. So much Dharma, so little time. But as I said earlier, it's uh, all a bit of a hologram. Uh, um, But tonight I'm going to talk about a particular quality of the heart-mind called equanimity. So the word for this quality in Pali is upekka, upekka. And I'd like to explain to you what this quality of mind is and to, to clarify what it isn't and to talk about how equanimity can actually support compassionate action in our relationships and in the world. So to start with the part of this, which is about defining equanimity, I'll start with an image. So imagine someone who's a master surfer. This would be somebody who's in constant balance response to continually moving conditions. So if you've seen pictures of some of these folks who, for instance, surf these mammoth, like 50-foot waves at some of these surfing competitions, and you really watch what they're doing, there's nothing static about their position on the board, right? They're not like... (laughs) Like I was the first time I ever skied. (laughs) Right? So they're always moving, they're not rigid, they're completely responsive to the waves on which they ride. And this gives you a sense of what's meant by this Pali term, upekka. You know, it refers to a state of connected, acceptance, accepting and balanced openness, um, relaxed, centered presence, clear, non-resistant allowing, and spacious stability. And this uh, word upekka in Pali is usually translated in, into equanimity in English. But in English, the word itself comes from Latin words. One is equus, meaning balanced, and animus, meaning spirit or internal state. And it's important to, to clarify what equanimity is not, because we can sometimes have a misunderstanding about what's being talked about when we talk about the cultivation of this particular quality of the heart. So it isn't suppression. So suppression has its place in certain circumstances, but um, in general, equanimity does not take the root of attempting to deal with an arising state or experience by stuffing it down or denying it or tightening around it. 
this reaction is more often a form of fear or aversion. And I think we all know what su- suppression is is like. Uh, you ever had this co- kind of conversation with somebody or um, where you can tell there's something uh, that has upset them or they're experiencing some difficult emotional state and, and you you basically say, are you okay? And they go, I'm fine. <laughs> no, are, are, no, you seem a little upset. I'm fine, right? I don't know, you seem a little tense. <laughs> you know? I'm fine. So it's, it's not that. <laughs> it's not, uh, you know, feeling uh, anger over something that's an infringement on boundaries and just shoving it down, shoving it down, shoving it down and, and not dealing with it. That's suppression. And as I said, sometimes uh, for pragmatic reasons, suppression uh, can be something that we need to do, but you wouldn't want to do very much of it as a primary life strategy. You know, gives you things like high blood pressure and that, well, um, worn down teeth from grinding them at night. So another thing that equanimity isn't is apathy or indifference. And that's where we don't really connect with what's going on, but we rather withdraw from reality in a defeated or deluded manner. So that's just like backing out of it, letting stuff go on around you that really needs some kind of response or intervention and just letting go. Letting go when actually something else is what's called for not responding when it would be wise to actually do so. So equanimity isn't either one of those things. It's not suppression and it's not apathy and indifferent. So the teacher Shinzen Young actually has a great quote that highlights the difference between equanimity and apathy in particular. So this is good enough to read twice. So equanimity involves non-interference with the natural flow of subjective sensation. Apathy implies indifference to the controllable outcome of objective events. Thus, although seemingly similar, equanimity and apathy are actually opposites. Equanimity frees up internal energy for responding to external situations. By definition, equanimity involves radical permission to feel and as such is the opposite of suppression. As far as external expression of feeling is concerned, internal equanimity gives one the freedom to externally express or not, depending on what's appropriate to the situation. So let's deconstruct this a little bit further. 
Equanimity involves non-interference with the natural flow of subjective sensation. Meaning, equanimity in and of itself is not trying to change anything that's being experienced. It's receiving things in real time as they are. Then he says, apathy implies indifference to the controllable outcome of objective events. So it's actually a stance of disengagement, even though engagement would be the skillful and appropriate thing to do. Then he says, equanimity frees up internal energy for responding to external situations. By definition, it involves radical permission to feel and as such is the opposite of suppression. So he says, equanimity isn't just holding stuff down. And in fact, because things are flowing freely, experiences flowing freely within us when equanimity is present, we are actually feeling what's going on and can respond to external situations with all the information that our subjective connection with experience is providing. And then he says, as far as external expression of feeling is concerned, meaning acting on something we're knowing, internal equanimity gives one the freedom to externally express or not, depending on what's appropriate to the situation. So he's basically saying, if there's equanimity there, you've got some choice about how to respond externally. You're not going to be driven by reactivity and you're not going to be frozen by fear. You can decide based on what's appropriate whether there's action coming from this experience that you're having. So this freedom to express externally or not, this equipoise actually comes from balance of mind. So if you're going to put it another way, with no compulsive reactivity present, wisdom is free to operate because you're not being driven into a particular response or non-response. So to take a look at why equanimity is of personal value. We've talked about some of the, the truths of uh, span of control limitations in some of the previous talks. So we live in this world where there's a limited ability to choose what we experience. Right? Would you agree with that? Right. So we know that, for instance, the eight worldly winds are always operating. Gain and loss, pleasure and pain, praise and blame, renowned and uh, censure. These things move through our lives again and again and through the lives of everybody else. And we know or we've heard the teaching or maybe you've observed here on the retreat for yourself that Things are always changing. 
So all experience have this characteristic of uh, anicca or impermanence. And thus we're always being presented with new experiences. So to use our surfing image, the waves of experience come and go as they will. And so you can see, since we can't control the waves, our happiness and well-being really comes from being uh, someone who has learned or is learning how to, to surf these experiences, not investing futile energy into trying to hold on to them or push them away. So take the case where we struggle against something that's painful or unpleasant. So if we struggle against something that's painful or unpleasant, while we lack the capacity to dominate it or govern it, we actually suffer from aversion in, a diff- in addition to, to what we're already experiencing, right? And if we struggle to hold on to something that's pleasant, we suffer additionally from greed, from the experience of craving and the fear of loss. But if we're free from the struggle of aversion, we don't suffer, even though the experience may be painful or unpleasant. So then the experience is known as it is, it's known for what it is, and it passes through our awareness without destroying our peace of mind. And this is an experience or a manifestation of equanimity. And likewise, if we're free from the struggle to hold on to what we like, we're able to connect with and allow what's pleasant without getting lost in it or without getting unhappy when things change. So we're getting all the upside of what's pleasant and none of the downside. So the experience is known for what it's what it is, and it passes through our awareness without destroying our peace of mind because it doesn't cause clinging. And this also is equanimity. So when we're balanced and centered and present, we experience the mind state of equanimity. And of course the question then is, how do we learn to open with equanimity to whatever we experience. So how do we learn how to surf the many experiences that we can have in a, in a sitting, in a, a day, in a week, in a lifetime? So let's take a look at how we can actually cultivate this quality of the heart-mind. So First, let's take a look at Vipassana practice and how this quality is developed in Vipassana. You may, when, you know, when people first start to meditate, they come to meditation, they start hearing the instructions. One of the things that they have to come to terms with is that the instructions actually encourage people who are practicing to accept 
difficult and unpleasant experiences that might arise as valid meditation objects. Have you noticed that? If you've been doing this for a while, if you come in and tell the teacher, da-da-da was happening and it was great, and then da-da-da-da happened. Well, usually fill in the blanks on that conversation is, da-da-da was happening and it was great, which means I was having something happen and it was pleasant and I was enjoying it. And then, then it went away or then it was replaced by, you know, this uh, particular emotion that I didn't care for, this particular body sensation that wasn't to my liking. So, you know, in the initial conversations like this, when people come in, it's really like they're telling you it's gone bad. You know, <laughs> the whole enterprise has gone bad, you know, it was, which tra- translates as it was pleasant and now it's not. Fix it. <laughs> but if you, if, you know, and it's very counterintuitive to be given the instruction that it's completely valid and indeed necessary to learn to practice with what's difficult and unpleasant. Because, you know, we are looking for bliss, we're looking for peace, we're looking for love and light. But the paradox to the whole cultivation is, how do you have more of those kinds of states? By learning not to divide your experience in half and reject half of it. So, Often difficult and unpleasant experiences are just the way things are. It's not a sign that you're necessarily doing anything wrong, either personally or in your practice. It's kind of hard to believe that sometimes, isn't it? You may go through periods in your life where it just, like, oh, you know, there's problems with the job, there's problems with the family, there's problems with your health, there's problems with the politics, there's, there's problems with, you know, your house. It's like problems, 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 problems. It doesn't necessarily mean you're doing anything wrong. Sometimes you might feel like, okay, this is like, I'm like the new Job or something here. <laughs> But even on the scale of a sitting, you know, you may get the internal version of, you know, the hail and locusts. So that's just the way that it is. That's what the practice is right then. Okay, this is practicing with hail and locusts. (laughs) Try not to step on any. (laughs) Don't let them get in your hair. You know, it's like, But, you know, this equanimity really is developed out of a process that connects with and uh, doesn't reject any and all experience. So this process of learning how to surf the waves of what's pleasant, what's unpleasant, and what's neutral is at the heart of the process. Now, how many of you have heard the teachings on the seven factors of awakening? Okay, a few, not so many. So I'll weave this teaching in 
now because equanimity is one of these. So the Buddha is uh, a great list maker. He would often explain his teachings and, you know, sets of this, this, this. There's the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and the Five Aggregates and the Five Hindrances and the Seven Factors of Awakening and the Ten Paramis. And anyway, so there are a lot of lists and they all have, uh, they're all significant because they're kind of like a, a highlighted version of things that the Buddha thinks are important for you to know because they're all pertinent to whether you suffer or don't. But one of these lists is a list called the Seven Factors of Awakening. And the Buddha says that um, if you're looking in terms of uh, mental qualities that will help you awaken, mental qualities that are developed and open in the process of somebody becoming uh, an awakened being, there are seven things <clears throat> that are cultivated. And the first of these is mindfulness, which is the uh, primary training that you're being offered here. So mindfulness comes first because it's the platform for doing everything else. And then he says, well, the next thing that that happens is investigation, which is a way that mindfulness is... Uh, deployed or utilized. So investigation is when mindfulness turns to noticing the particulars, the specifics of immediate experience in an interested way. It's like starting to notice the grain of things or the detail of an experience that's present. Starts to notice what is present and how, it, how it's manifesting and as it's attended to kind of what it does. So there's investigation, which is sometimes also called investigation of states. And from this process of mindfulness investigating immediate experience, then there arises energy and effort. Because when you get interested in something, it brings energy, right? It's like you're not making yourself do it anymore. It's like you're curious, you're interested. The mind is, is engaged. And that brings energy. The next thing that, that arises in this sequence is a quality of mind called rapture, rapt interest. Sometimes it's translated as joy. The mind gets, gets happy with this process. And after that there opens tranquility or calm. The mind's uh, interest and joy becomes more um, manifesting in terms of um, peace or calm, which then supports the arising of concentration of the mind, non-distractedness, unification of the mind. And then the last of this list of what opens in uh, insight practice is equanimity. That's the last of the seven factors of awakening and it's considered to be the capstone in many ways. 
And these generally develop in this order, but not completely sequentially. It's more like a spiral kind of development. And high equanimity, or the furthest development of equanimity, is the result of continued practice in connecting with all of experience in a specific manner. So when the mind learns to relate to everything it can experience in a particular way, which has mindfulness as its, its central core, then high equanimity can arise. So if you consider what's going on in Vipassana practice or insight practice, the whole thing is about opening again and again to what's sometimes referred to as things as they have come to be. So without discrimination, we learn how to offer to what's actually present, whether we prefer it or not. And without clinging, we let go of things when they pass away, not holding on and not pushing away. And from this way of practicing, the mind develops a kind of non-attached presence which attunes to whatever is happening. So the, the Sri Lankan teacher Bhante Gunarantana describes the process of developing equanimity through Vipassana practice like this. He says, once you see that all the components of the body and mind in the past, present, and future are impermanent unsatisfactory and without self, something remarkable happens. Equanimity arises regarding all conditioned things and everything that you experience subjectively is conditioned. Your mind looks at everything with equanimity, wholesome, unwholesome, physical, mental, verbal, good or bad or indifferent, it's all the same. Meaning the mind treats it in a um, uniform manner, relates to it in a uniform manner. Good, bad, or indifferent, it's all the same. It's beingness. It's simply reality. Your viewpoint is imperturbable. You realize that all those wonderful thoughts and feelings are constantly changing on a very subtle level, and those terrible ones are constantly changing. And from this, a deep letting go can arise and with that the coming of something that has been referred to in another spiritual tradition as peace that passes understanding. So it's this state that's described as high equanimity where all resistance to things as they are has ceased and where there's no holding on. So the mind is simply open to reality just as it is. It sees things clearly as they are. And it's from states of deep equanimity that classical enlightenment experiences arise. So there I've said the E word. But you have to realize that this kind of high equanimity is a culmination of the unfolding of the seven factors of enlightenment or awakening, and it's not the starting point of it. 
So we can't will ourselves into it. It's not um, like that. This emerges out of a process of learning moment by moment to connect and open and allow what arises to be as it is. So how do you learn how to do that? Well, by following the meditation (laughs) instructions and by gradually learning how to connect with things with balance. To go back to our surfing analogy, if you've ever seen somebody getting surfing lessons or you've gotten them yourself, it's a, it's a particular gradual process. So they start with the board on the beach and you on the beach too and they, t- <laughs> and they show you how to get on the board and then they have you lay down on the board and then they show you how to go from laying down on the board to getting up on the board on the beach, right? And so you practice that, practice uh, with the board on the beach, getting up. And insight practice is like that too, right? With the instructions we try to start you know, very simply with uh, a few objects and do the coaching about how to bring wise attention to those particular things. And then when the hindrances, etc., arise, how to work with those. And then gradually we, we would add in more and more uh, objects for you to open to and practice with directly until at some point everything's in the pot. So if we're going to say, well, how do you learn how to do this? Well, just like with surfing, by falling off the board and falling off the board and falling off the board, swallowing a lot of water sometimes, and getting back on. Because this is a gradual process of learning how to uh, recognize and bring attentional skill to what we're knowing. And there's a whole process also of developing heart qualities that support our being able to do that. So when you think of what goes into practicing, you've seen for yourself on this retreat that you've had to pull on a lot of heart qualities to be able to do this and to be willing to do it. So just to name a few. Resolve, patience, metta, compassion, renunciation or letting go, right? All of these are part of it. Courage, self-forgiveness, faith, confidence, Right? You had to start, how many times have you had to start all over again? Even in a single sitting, you know? Breathing in, I wonder what it's going to be like when I get home. (laughs) Hope my dog's okay. He loves those chewies. I don't think there's any in the closet. (laughs) Right? It's like, in breath, (laughs) out breath. (laughs) 
in breath, out breath, right? It takes a lot. It takes a lot to continually come back, given how uh, rambunctious and uh, wander-prone the mind is. And that's even separate from all the work with the hindrances and the difficult states of mind and the difficult states of body, you know, the knee pain, the back pain, the shoulder pain, the neck pain, the, you know, the foot pain, <laughs> you know, it just can just go on and on, right? Oh, I, got, I think I got rid of, oh, the back, it's a little better. Oh, I think it's in my hip. <laughs> That's right. It can kind of migrate around like that. So it takes, a, it takes a lot to be willing, right? And the renunciation of being in this environment, which is lovely and clean and you're well cared for and well provided for and you're surrounded by, by good people, but, you know, it's not your bed. Bathroom's down the hall. So to get to the point where you have cultivated these, this uh, mind in the direction of equanimity, you've had to do a lot of development in other ways. Right? Psycho-emotional development as well as, as attentional development. So there's the meditation practice skills, but then there, there's all these other dimensions of our being that we engage in learning how to do this that have to grow and develop as well. So there's the falling off the board and falling off the board again and again. And with any other skill that requires finesse, like surfing or like meditating, we need to get a feel for what right effort is, right effort or wise effort is. In any particular situation. So how do you kind of get that idea about like what should you do with this and how much energy should this require should I like relax now should I try harder should I go to something else should I try to notice more should I just settle back and let it be should I right these are all questions about wise effort so you can see that this kind of persistent and consistent effort takes a lot of dedication And uh, sometimes it can be hard to feel this dedication, but there are ways that we can actually support our willingness to do the work. And for some people, one reflection that can be particularly inspiring has to do with relationships with other people. So I know there are a number of people in here who do Uh, human service work of some type, you know, whether that's being a therapist or a social worker or, you know, a teacher or there's a lot of different versions of this, a volunteer, uh, you know, a foster parent, a grandparent who's taking care of uh, a child, I mean, uh, an activist in certain kinds of ways, right? Many of you have that, that dimension of your being, And for me, there's a very strong relationship between steadying the mind, which is practicing equanimity, and being able to open the heart. 
because the heart doesn't open unless it feels at least somewhat safe. Isn't that true? I mean, we can't just say like, I'm going to open my heart, you know. I feel all this fear, but I'm just going to like open my heart. I'm going to just, ah. You can't force that, right? It would be unwise to, to force that, as a matter of fact. But equanimity actually helps provide the sense of safety that makes it possible to open the heart. And this is one of the implicit reasons, I think, that uh, equanimity, the direct cultivation of equanimity, is the one of the four Brahma-vihara practices. You've been practicing the first of the uh, attitudinal trainings in the afternoon with the cultivation of metta, goodwill, the second of these is karuna, compassion. The third of these is mudita, or empathetic joy. And then the fourth of these attitudinal trainings is equanimity itself. Oh, that's interesting. You can kind of like get the first three, right? Goodwill, compassion, happiness at the happiness of others. And then there's equanimity. And why would that be important? Because without that, the practice of the other three are not going to have balance. And because you know that the truth of things is, even though we may wish the best for everyone, even though we may uh, wish that their suffering be eased, etc., we don't actually have that span of control. So if we enter into trying to help somebody else or trying to support them or trying to work with somebody who's experiencing a lot of distress and we don't have balance of mind ourselves, what happens? Do the the words burn out sound familiar? So Equanimity grows in part by the process of gradually learning to open to difficult states. And as I was saying earlier, the laboratory for that is within our own minds, and the laboratory for that is our own challenging states of mind. But there's an interesting aspect of the practice of mindfulness which is, the Buddha talks about how you can practice mindfulness internally and externally. Is anybody familiar with that refrain from the Satipatthana Sutta? One practices mindfulness internally and externally. Well, what does that mean? Well, okay, the internally thing we kind of get, right? Like, that would have to do with our own experience, our own arising experience. (laughs) Yeah, we practice working with that. And it's also the case that we can use our mindfulness to turn towards others and recognize or receive their own experience too. Right? The more mindfulness you have, the better you get at recognizing somebody else's state. You're picking up on like the subtle nonverbals. You're noticing the, the tone of voice. You know, you're noticing what words are chosen 
to communicate. You're noticing what is going on in the physicality. You're just more receptive overall, right? You're more sensitive, you're more present. So you're noticing more. You can practice mindfulness externally and notice what is so for beings in real time. So, so we can cultivate equanimity in our own direct internal experience as a ground to strengthen equanimity and we can cultivate equanimity in relationship to others and their experiences. So I told a story a couple days ago about Ianla Van Zant and how she went to Ferguson and how she first worked with the African American community there which was experiencing a lot of distress and grief and then how she went and worked with the white community well that was a kind of masterful <laughs> expression of equanimity right like she could she could go to two different groups one of which was her home group and the other one was what might be considered to be uh, unfriendly or at least risky territory and she could have evenness of mind in both of those environments and be present to people in those two communities uh, in real time without losing her openness or losing her balance. So she had the equanimity going on there as well as a lot of other wholesome qualities of mind. And it's really crucial in having this quality of mind when you're dealing with the suffering states of others. So when upekka is strong, then it can keep us from tipping over into pity or fear or disgust when we attempt to give support and assistance to other people. Right? Because we have a certain kind of balance of the heart-mind. We can go in close without for instance, compassion for others becoming self-destructive or a state of suffering for ourselves. You know, there are ways we as human beings, because we, we can resonate with others, there's a certain way in which we can resonate with others so that their suffering becomes our own suffering, right? How many people have had that experience of, you know, like being in there, you know, close to a difficult situation, you know, whether that's with a family member who's, who's sick or, um, you know, somebody else that you're trying to help and support and you wound up getting burned. Yeah. Well, if you haven't, you will. <laughs> so, if we have equanimity, there's a kind of steadiness of mind, a kind of centeredness that can ob observe or know suffering without being drowned in it. So there's, there's this expression, uh, keeping, our, keeping your seat. Any horse people here? Is that a familiar expression, keeping your seat? So it basically refers to learning how to stay on the horse 
in wise relationship no matter what screwy thing it chooses to do, right? You're so closely connected to it, you automatically find the place of of balance or counterbalance. So you're not thrown, you're not thrown off. So going back to Shinzen's uh, conversation about this quality of equanimity, you see what he's talking about. It's so open and so accepting, it's not easily thrown off center, it's infinitely flexible. So having learned how to work with these states as they arise in our own hearts and minds, we learn how to keep balance and not be submerged into suffering. So there's some buoyancy there. We're present, we're sensitive to the circumstances, and our heart can be open. And this is really the state in which we have the maximal ability to act and choose and wisen skillful and effective ways that promote the well-being of ourselves and others. Right? Because rage, rage is not a strategy. You know, it's suffering. It's got a ton of energy in it. Or, you know, desperately trying to make something not happen that you see happening because you see it's suffering is not necessarily um, going to lead to a good outcome if there isn't some kind of clarity of mind there. Right? So for me, reflecting on the potency of equanimity can be a motivator to actually do what's necessary in order to develop this quality of the heart. So in order to do that, we need to learn to work with our own difficult states. And for me, this was uh, an important resource in practice when I considered that if I learned how to work with my own stuff, then I could do more. And I might even be able to be in the situation where I could help other people work with their own stuff. And why is that? Because decreased reactivity to our own states is a resource when working with the difficult states of others. Right? Because in a certain kind of way it's no different. So if we aren't afraid of or reactive to our own greed, aversion, or delusion, then we've laid the ground for not being afraid of those experiences as they manifest in other beings. So then we can come in close to help and and not get burned. And because the clarity of mind is intact there, we can see how helpful it is to get close and just how close we should get, right? Because sometimes close, close, close in is really not the right range with which to deal with situations of a a lot of suffering. 
So as we figure out what we should do or what we can do to be helpful, we can let go of impulses to rescue when rescue is not available or counter-indicated. Right? So there's discernment that's possible here too. Right? We all know um, what happens if we take an inappropriate responsibility for the lives of somebody else. Has anybody had that experience? Either with somebody in your family or a friend or right where you're doing the work and they're not. There's a word for that. Uh, I think it's codependence. Is that the word? Codependency? Enabling. Enabling, rescuing. So when, it, when our action isn't coming from our co- compulsivity uh, to try to eliminate somebody else's experience because we can't take it, <laughs> it's bothering us <laughs> to see them like that, and, and it's our, our distress we're really trying to erase, there are a lot more skillful options that are available. So if we're going to say, well, how do you learn how to work with the difficult states of others? It's like how we learn how to work with our own difficult states, right? Trying and failing and coming to see things more carefully, you know, changing the approach and trying again. And so for those of you who are in the helping professions or are activists or have been activists or have uh, had the... uh, the burden or the responsibility of uh, caretaking and that kind of thing. Um, you know, it's impossible to open to the suffering of other people and uh, never get burned yourself. I'll just say that baldly. It's impossible to open to the suffering of others and never get burned yourself. However, <laughs> uh, it is possible to learn that you are getting burned, <laughs> like to start to notice that like uh, sooner into the process and to change the approach to make it more skillful. And maybe they'll, they'll still be suffering there. So then you would learn and change and uh, adjust again. So with time, if your observation is close and the way of working is adjusted, more is possible for you. So part of the observation is knowing when it's too much, you know, and when the surfer has actually fallen from the board and is in the water. So if you see, um, you know, a fin circling, (laughs) then that's actually a sign to get out of the water, not to get back on the board and hang out there and try it some more. So, you know, this is the wisdom piece of it. So the, the practice of compassion is not a, a practice of self-destruction or, um, or suffering. It's not like that. So within compassion, we have to hold self-compassion and self-meta, you know, and not, um, not voluntarily throw ourselves on the pyre 
And in order to make these discernments, then you need to know your own state as well as that of others and consider realistically what kind of resources are currently available to employ. And of course, one of the most important resources in making that discernment is having a clear and steady mind, which is another way of saying equanimity. And there's a, a whole practice, Brahma-vihara practice, of developing equanimity directly. Um, and if you're, you're interested in learning how to do that, then a good way to do that would be sometime to go on a, a Brahma-vihara retreat or to go on a retreat that focuses particularly on, on equanimity and learn to work with that. So you can see that this quality of the heart-mind, upekka, is a very important part of the, the Buddha's path. So you would say the Buddha himself had perfected equanimity, and you can see that the arc of the practice cultivation, even in insight practice, has equanimity as its end result, as its capstone where the mind is very well connected with arising reality, nothing is denied, nothing is clung to, nothing is pushed away. It's completely sensitive and open and receptive to things without being swept away or pushed out of balance by what's known. So you may not have known that you're practicing in this direction, but you actually are. So, yeah, so you're doing good. (laughs) Whoever would have guessed sitting there feeling your breath has such potentiality May the many wholesome actions of our practice today be a cause and condition for our own awakening and that of others. And as we strengthen and develop our own hearts and minds, may we be a resource, may we be of benefit to all beings without exception. And may we all awaken together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.